You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Uh, so we're just giving people a chance to filter in and let Facebook load. Thank you all so much for joining us tonight. We'll get started in just a moment. And we are all connected, so take it away, Emily. Okay. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Emily Rosen. I am the manager of outreach at the Ivy Bookshop. Um, I'm so excited to be here tonight, um, working, you know, in collaboration with Enoch Pratt, which we've always felt so lucky to be able to do. Um, as a Baltimore resident, Enoch Pratt has always been a very important part of my life in the city and working, you know, in the book world now in my profession, it's really exciting to be connected to the Pratt in so many other different ways, um, Tonight's going to be a great conversation with Furman about privacy in the digital age, which is always such a, you know, relevant and timely and necessary conversation. Um, as always, I will put the link for uh, Furman's book to buy through the IB Bookshop in the chat. Um, and you can feel free to visit that to purchase the book and we can send it to you curbside pickup at both our locations, Bird in Hand and the Ivy, whatever you are comfortable with. Um, we really hope you enjoy and now I'll turn it over to Tracy. Thank you, Emily. Um, I can't wait to go visit the new Ivy location and walk those three acres. Yeah. Um, so good evening, everyone. I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And before we officially start, I just wanted to fill you in on some things happening at the Pratt. We have sidewalk service at 14 of our libraries, so you can still access physical materials as well as mobile printing at these libraries. On November 4th, we began welcoming uh, people back into the library with public computer reservations. So these in-person public computer use appointments will be available at Central Library, Southeast Anchor Library and the Pennsylvania Avenue branch by appointment only. Including tonight, we have an excellent slate of conversations over the next week. Anthony Ray Hinton will be in conversation with Jenny Egan on the 17th. Tawanda Jones, Erica Green, Baynard Woods and Brandon Soderberg will be in conversation with State Senator Jill Carter on the 18th and Senator Barbara Mikulski and Ambassador Wendy Sherman will be in conversation on November 19th to celebrate the virtual dedication of the Senator Barbara Mikulski Room. So details about everything I've mentioned can be found on prattlibrary.org. Tonight, we're thrilled to have Furman DeBraybander in conversation with columnist Dan Rodericks. Uh, some logistics, if you're watching in Zoom, please click the chat bubble on your screen to post your questions. Um, and if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. I'll be monitoring both um, and uh, I will be monitoring both. So please post there and we'll make sure that your questions are answered. With life after privacy, reclaiming democracy in a surveillance society, 
professor of philosophy at Micah, uh, Furman de Brabander explores the role that privacy does and does not play in today's world. He aims to understand the prospects and future of democracy without any privacy or very little of it within a society that does not know how to appreciate and protect it. He'll be in conversation with Dan Rodericks, longtime columnist for the Baltimore Sun uh, and local radio and television personality who has won several national and regional journalism awards over a reporting, writing, and broadcast career spanning five decades. So like Emily said, don't forget to order your copy from Life After Privacy, and please give a warm welcome to Furman and Dan. Thank you, Tracy. And Furman, it's nice to see you again. Thank you, hi. Uh, we've had uh, conversations in the past uh, about guns. Yes. That was a subject you were very interested in, uh, controlling guns and gun regulation, sales of guns, the gun culture. Mm -hmm. and fascinating great conversations we had about that and uh, life after privacy great title for a book that i found really provocative and interesting raised questions that i i just had never raised myself before and i've got to tell you this subject of privacy i've explored with national security experts mm. uh, law professors mm. members of congress but never with a professor of philosophy so i wonder how did you how did you make this transition? What, what got you interested in, in, in this subject uh, of privacy, defining what it is, what it has been through history, and where we are with it now? What, what got you there, first of all? Uh, well, I guess it started, as with my gun book, it started also with conversations with my students. And my uh -huh. students are 20-year-olds, of course, uh, what you know some might call digital natives. And their relationship with technology, I just found remarkably different from my own. Uh, to be honest, the, the book started very beginning of it started in 2013 after the Edward Snowden revelations about the NSA, its mass surveillance of the American people. And I remember I came into class and I was all up in arms and I, I told the students, this is awful. Don't you think this is <laughs> awful? And yeah. I could not get anybody to agree with me. <laughs> right. agreed with me that it was awful. And then, you know, I, I pressed them a little further and, you know, they, they really could not say why it was a problem. And it was very interesting, remarkable to me to see that they just viewed privacy in such a different light. I remember uh, that debate, that discussion, and it was something like, well, the government has this information about us, yeah. mega information, massive amounts of information about our telephone use and our communications. Yeah. And if you're not, if you're not doing anything wrong, yeah. if you're not a terrorist threat, then you've got nothing to worry about. What's the problem? That's right. Uh, remember, is that how it went with your students? Well, I remember Bill O'Reilly. He said that at the time. Of course, yeah. I said to my students, well, that's a tip off right there, you know. But the, my students themselves said the same thing. In fact, my son, my own son, who I think is a pretty smart guy, uh, he said the same thing to me not long ago. He said, but dad, you know, I don't, why should I be worried about what they're collecting online? I'm not really saying anything sensitive or important, you know, I'm not really revealing anything. So this view is pervasive. Yes. And so I wanted to tell you that I, in reading your book, I was thinking that I and others, we're now past what I call the creepy stage. Yeah. We're, we're in the post creepy stage I think so. with privacy in the digital age. I think, I think a lot of people have grown used to what we used to call creepy. 
which right. was, you know, you're on your computer, you look up, I don't know, potato peelers or uh, blankets, right. and then suddenly advertising for potato peelers and blankets start appearing, appearing on your screen. It's almost a cliche now. Yeah, I think we've grown used to it. At first, you used to think, well, that's kind of creepy. Right. Why is, why is that happening? How do I make that stop? And then you then we get used to it. It's mm -hmm. there all the time. So do you think uh, Americans, and we talk about Americans, people in general have learned to accept this? Well, I have to tell you, my book started otherwise. My initial idea for the book was, well, damn it, I need to defend privacy. People need to hear. They need to understand what's going on. I thought I had to articulate it. I thought I then had to defend it in a way that people would appreciate. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, <laughs> I think it's, I think that ship has sailed. Um, I'm, I, the more I looked, the more I did the research, that is, the more I right. looked into the industry of big data and all that they're invested in, uh, in addition to our, you know, the pervasive outlook and attitudes and behaviors that you mentioned, right? Um, it was, you know, it's a twofold thing. On one hand, I looked at the digital generation and, you know, our generation too. And I thought, well, and this digital economy that we're locked into it, like, you know, what would it really take to, to make us appreciate privacy again? And is that feasible? And I became quite skeptical of that. Um, and then, especially when I looked at the, you know, looked at all the research and I realized, you know, what our spies are doing with this information and what they're looking for. It, mm -hmm. it was a very tough hill to climb. But then as a philosopher, I really thought more about this idea of privacy itself and um, a definition of it. And I realized that the idea of privacy itself is uh, very troubled. And it's troubled. Not, yes. You mean, not, you mean we're, we're not really clear on what privacy is? It is or? hopelessly incoherent. And what's more, it's also a recent notion. It's, it's hardly universal, you know, and it's hardly eternal. Uh, it's a very recent notion. In fact, the more I read about the history of privacy, I learned we've never had privacy. Privacy was never safe. It's never been safe. It's always been threatened. So I thought it was very curious that privacy advocates, I ended up, you know, turning the tables on the privacy advocates and thinking, well, you know, they suggest that if only we could get back to this earlier appreciation of privacy, uh, as if it were a notion that were invoked by our founding fathers. Yeah, I was going to say, excuse me, but is that with Jefferson and Madison and Washington? I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a lot of people put privacy right next to liberty. They do. Think, don't they? Well, they do, but, you know, the funny thing is privacy is not mentioned in the Constitution. It's not even in there. Uh, right? And is it, I, is it in the Declaration of Independence? Did you check that? Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't, I besides, don't. they would have pronounced it privacy at the time, I think. Well, but you know, anyway. So, uh, yeah, I confronted something interesting there, which is that, you know, as a culture, we kind of take for granted that it is an enduring and important American value, even while people don't give it much thought, really. They really don't care much about it. Um, and then, in addition to that, you know, the historians, they actually have done a piecemeal work trying to spell out how it is an important original virtue, even while the history is much more murky. It's not clear at all that the founders understood privacy at all the way we did. In fact, 
legal scholarship doesn't really start to carve out a right of privacy until Louis Brandeis at the end of the 1800s. And then it only really becomes a right of privacy as we know it in the 1960s. And then you get a lot of like historical reconstruction from people like Justice Douglas, who then say, well, you can't really have this Bill of Rights without a right of privacy. So uh, it kind of presumes a right of privacy. So a lot of this is historical reconstruction, in my view. Okay. Privacy, the individual, individualism, it seems to be part of America. It yes. seems, and you argue that that's sort of, that's counter to democracy, to a, a, a true liberal democracy. Well, so as a political philosopher, where it's interesting is that, you know, well, so for example, when I had to confront my students about Edward Snowden, I had to say to them, you know, why is this important? Well, the traditional argument is that privacy is important because you can't have democracy and freedom and autonomy without it. And so I decided, well, if hmm. that is our future yeah. in the digital age, then I think I'm interested in saving democracy. Maybe see <laughs> what democracy looks like without privacy. And so I started to ask the question, does democracy need privacy? And I concluded that it doesn't. That it's overrated? It is. Uh, <laughs> the word I use is oversold. I don't uh, like to use the word overrated because I don't want to imply that I don't like privacy. I am not someone who's going to bravely say, forget it. I, I will admit that I, like everyone, there is an attachment there to privacy. I have it as well. I can't fully understand why. I'm not sure it's totally justified, but there is an affection there for sure. So I don't okay. want to. I don't want to dismiss it out of hand, but right. I want to say that its political value is something we can surpass mm -hmm. and overcome. But I'm I'm thinking of privacy along the line of individualism that yeah. people in, in anywhere, Americans or wherever, mm -hmm. like the idea of privacy because they're sort of on their own and yeah. uh, they want to be left alone. Yeah. And to me, that runs counter to the idea of the common good, the common wheel mm -hmm. and, and democracy. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you agree with that? I certainly do. But see, I'm a, I'm a fan of John Dewey, the American philosopher who was based at Hopkins for a while. John Dewey argues that the basis of democracy is not the individual, it's, uh, it's associations. It's people that form associations and then community itself is made up of these associations. But see, there are competing notions here, right? You have, you have the notion that you are mentioning, the notion of democracy that you mentioned, which is, I think, sounds to me like it's aligned with Dewey. But you do have this very popular notion of democracy that the basis is the individual, the lone individual who is out for himself. And this happens to be a very popular notion of democracy in America, right? The, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the, it's the type that leans libertarian, you know, and maybe that's one of the reasons why privacy is, you know, at least taken to be or presumed to be such an important virtue in America. Hmm. Much like guns, <laughs> for that matter, right? They're okay. both in a way understood in, tar in terms of our individualism. Mm-hmm. Something came up in the news just yesterday that I wanted to ask you about, because this speaks to the subject of convenience in the digital age, what we give away in terms of privacy yeah. in order to have all the conveniences that we have in the digital age, especially now with COVID ordering, you know, what we need from, from home without having to leave home, online shopping and all. Mm -hmm. um, this is a headline in the Baltimore Sun yesterday and today, Maryland launches cell phone app 
to notify public of COVID-19 exposure. Yeah. Listen to this. Cell phone users in Maryland can now use an app that will notify them if they have been exposed to someone who tested positive for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. The idea is to capture people anonymously through their iPhones or Android devices. Mm -hmm. The technology uses a number that regularly changes mm -hmm. and not people's names or other identifying information. That's according to the, the Department of Health. Mm -hmm. um, and so this thing popped up and they, we, we provided information about how you can download the app mm -hmm. and receive alerts. Um, this is called MD COVID alert. It uses Bluetooth, low energy technology, yeah. and it does not collect or share information on a person's identity or whereabouts. It uses the random IDs assigned a person once they've been nearby someone who tests positive. Mm -hmm. and then you get an alert. Yeah. So, okay. So my reaction to this was, well, that sounds, that's pretty cool. How do they do that? Yeah. I wanted to actually know more about how that was done. Mm -hmm. The son's explanation was pretty good, but I wanted to know more. But that my other reaction was, uh, who okayed this? <laughs> I mean, this sounds like a great benefit to, to us because it would give you an early uh, warning that you've been near somebody with the disease. Mm -hmm. However, I just wonder, like, who arranged all this? How did all um, this happen? This sounds like the pro. This sounds like the program that Apple and Google were working on, that they announced they were working on in the spring, uh, right. which is our, which is the American version of digital contact tracing, which is much, uh, um, much more innocuous than what has been deployed in other countries. Well, but, I understand, but you, you, my question is, like, who's the big brother arranging all these? I understand Google and, uh, and would you say Google and it's Google and Apple. Apple. Google and Apple. Yeah. So this. I understand that, but it, it seems like all this data is being collected mm. for the for the for the for the public good, right? Yeah. But we didn't have much say in that, did we? No, we did not. <laughs> Do, is is there any objection to it? I asked listeners. Uh, I, I tweeted out the question: Does anybody have a problem? problem with this on, from a privacy point of view, and I would doubt people do. I mean, yeah. thousands of people have already signed up for this. I, I would doubt it as well. Right. <laughs> Quite frankly, I mean, I'm looking, I've been think, looking at all the surveillance and that's been deployed since COVID began. And by the way, what you're talking about is child's play compared to what has been deployed in other countries. Um, you know, um, what they deployed in China was quite impressive, you know, by the way. And mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, this is part and parcel of the discussion we had a minute ago about the creepy factor is gone. Like, I just think, you know, we've switched, you know, people um, are not uh, worried about this. In fact, you know, as these, you know, we're on the, are we on the precipice of another lockdown? If we are, I wrote this a while ago. I think people will be happy <laughs> for a more invasive you know, con contact tracing that's more effective and that in that engages perhaps even more surveillance. You know, I think people would be, they would accept this if this helps us return to life as, as normal. Um, speaking of uh, health, this is health related. In your book, you talk about how uh, biosensors are being used yeah. uh, to help people with chronic diseases or just people in general yeah, have have better and more frequent contact with a sort of e doctor, right? Yeah. Online, mm -hmm. uh, and again another benefit, but also you're giving up lots of information, right? Right from your own body uh, right. to a computer somewhere, right? That's right. 
that's the new frontier. Your body will be the new frontier, you know, for early detection of certain ailments or diseases or cancers. Um, you know, and I uh, think that people have argued that I think people that the pressure to adopt this kind of surveillance is going to be immense um, and that people will be eager for it, frankly. Uh, one of the cases I look at in the book is diabetes, um, you know, and diabetes is, of course, a major affliction in this country. We have a crisis in diabetes for a variety of reasons, a lot of it related to diet um, and exercise and our carbon lifestyle. Um, and, um, you know, it's a very expensive disease, right? And so if we want to press ahead with public, with our healthcare reform, we really have to clamp down on the excessive costs here. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure to make diabetes manageable and more cost-effective. It turns out technology can do this. That is constant monitoring. Constant monitoring can do this monitoring of your blood sugar level. And if you input data about what you're eating, um, and the like, you know, um, all these various health sensors that can be taken throughout the day. And then this relate to what, you know, to like a virtual doctor who constantly tweaks, you know, your medication or your intake or your diet, right? They have found that through that kind of constant surveillance and constant tweaking, you can uh, live a manageable and much more affordable life you know, you don't have to live the severe uh, consequences of, of diabetes. So that is a very tempting goal right there. Right. Um, and, you know, thinking in terms of, I had an antidote of pancreatic cancer, I was, you know, which is the kind of disease that, you know, tends to creep up on people, sometimes in the middle of their lifetime, you know, they are, um, you know, uh, researchers are excited about certain technologies that can catch that but this, would, this is looking far ahead. These will be sensors that will be injected into your body that then they can, they can relay information from inside your body. They can already do this with respect to like pacemakers and implants uh, for bacterial buildup. So the spies now have, you know, they have citadels literally inside your body relaying information out. And I tell you what, uh, the prospect of catching, you know, getting pancreatic cancer in the middle of life when you have children, that's terrifying. I bet you a lot of people will sign up for that. Okay. So what you've described sounds like something very positive to most people. I would, I would say, I would guess. I don't have an audience here to ask, but I think, I think they would say, well, that's, that sounds pretty good. That sounds like something I want to be. Well, you'll be monitored all the time from the, understand. Deepest, the deepest recesses of your body. So right. you're okay with that. Well, I'd like, yeah, I wish we could do a quick survey to find out, but I would think people would find this a positive, an upside to the living in this digital age that we're in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you use the word spies, and it's very interesting. I mean, spies suggest something negative, you know, somebody planted who's watching you and when you don't want them watching you. Yeah. When we've actually given permission Yes. Right. Uh, so I don't know. Is is spy a fair word? Uh, no, it's not. There? It's just easy. <laughs> it's easy <laughs> I mean, word. What I always okay. say is that we've made the the job of our spies insanely easy. <laughs> you know, mm. they don't have to work very hard. Right. We, we tell them everything. Right. So who's pushing back then? I mean, 
You don't sound exactly like you're pushing back. You're raising some interesting questions. One more about democracy that I'm going to get to in a minute. But who's pushing back? There are, there's the school that says, without being troglodytes, we have to find some way of pushing back against all of this invasive stuff. Uh, yeah. Right? We yeah. can't just accede to it. Right. Um, who's who's saying that? Well, I mean, you have right. um, you have civil libertarians and privacy advocates. Uh, who are, you know, at the forefront of this battle. And, uh, you know, their voice is amplified by people like Edward Snowden and um, Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. Uh, he was the journalist. Formerly of The Intercept. Formerly, I know. But yeah. he, uh, you know, and um, they, and and their major tool is is privacy regulations, such as what they have imposed in Europe, the GDPR, the uh, General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, that's what GDPR stands for. And, you know, the press made a big deal about this. The, these regulations were rolled out in 2018, and they're much more robust than anything. I mean, the regulators in America would, uh, sorry, I should say privacy advocates in America would love to in, enact similar regulations in, in this country. But the problem is our tech companies, their lobby is so intense, they don't stand a chance. The EU, meanwhile, they were able to implement these these regulations. Um, so, I mean, that's where the battle is, I guess, but I, I don't, I'm not very optimistic about that battle. Because the genie's out. Well, be, uh, principally because the genie's out, but also because um, regulations, the regulations that privacy advocates have cooked up or that they think about, their general plan is to empower individuals to give individual digital consumers greater power to control their data, to say, you know, to a company, what do you want? What information do you want? And what do you want it for? And how long are you going to hold it? And stuff like that. And, you know, I've argued that if you look at the industry of big data, the kind of science that they're engaged in, the kind of analysis and algorithms that is a hopeless battle. You can't pin individual digital consumers up against the biggest corporations on the planet. That, that, that's not a level playing field. Um, we never <laughs> will possibly know what, and I give plenty of examples in the book, we never will possibly know um, all the uses to which these companies will use our data. In fact, they don't know, right? They're still figuring out what data is meaningful. Right. So when my son says, for example, oh, it's not important what they find out about me, that's not for you to judge. Facebook knows you don't have a clue. Mm -hmm. Isn't it mostly for uh, sales? Isn't yeah. it? Mo isn't most most of this about marketing stuff well, to a, so a massively consumer society? We're yeah. already, a, you know, seventy percent of the economy is consumerism, right? I mean, like the, the 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 danger that I sense, the danger that I sketch out is that these corporations are incredibly rapidly hungry and they just are not content with their market share until they have controlled us and turned us into some kind of you know consumer automatons where we don't have any free will anymore we just have to you know suck it all in we, we can't help ourselves you know um it, it's it's really you know it's really a not it's not a very flattering picture of corporate america when you look when you look at this more closely, right? Especially the example of Target finding out when consumers were pregnant. I mean, that's not, that's not super. That doesn't make you feel all warm and fuzzy about Target. Uh, we're speaking with Furman DeBay-Brander. His book is 
Life After Privacy, Reclaiming Democracy in a Surveillance Society. We'll be right back. No, I'm kidding. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> no. I, okay, here's something I want to ask Furman about. Um, in light of the election, this political season that we're in, this political climate we're in, this super partisanship that we're in in, in America. Um, you say in the book that digital media have contributed to political ignorance and impotence. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in that. Um, I was thinking about how uh, all of us are in an echo chamber to some yeah. degree. Uh, people are drawn to opinions and ideas that they pretty much already agree with. You know, this confirmation bias is big with all of us uh, to some degree. Some people more open-minded and like the noise of democracy. They like mm. debate. Uh, they like that it's never really clean, that somebody's always arguing uh, from a different point of view. But there's a lot of people who just are, are drawn to and stay in their echo chamber. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing that now with Fox News, the revolt against Fox News from its viewers who don't like yeah. that some of their commentators and, and hosts are saying that, you know, Joe Biden won the election. Right. Um, so to what degree do you think all of that is true? And then that, I think it is true. So how do we get out of it? Um, I mean, we're very comfortable where we are, most, a lot of people, right? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty, um, it is pretty troubling. In fact, I've been thinking lately about this. Uh, I've been reading how, um, you know, uh, so these social media companies have been um, urged to uh, flag uh, either provocative or troubling or, or overtly false statements like Twitter right. and Facebook, right? And so right. how have some conservatives responded to Facebook? They have gone to a different social media site called Parler, which I only heard about the other day. I haven't seen it. Right. But, you know, immediately that 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 is a problem for me because now we're even going to have our own social media sites, you know. That's going to make the echo chamber effect even worse. Um it, you know, I, what's, it, what's remarkable about this is that people didn't see this coming, right? The early days, you and I lived through the early days of the internet, we saw, remember the ebullience and the optimism, right? This is going to be great for democracy. People will talk across the bridge, across the divide, and it has done any, anything but the opposite, you know? Right. I don't know. I, you know, I, here I plead ignorance. I, I, I ask my students this all the time. In fact, I asked them just, just yesterday. I, said, I say to them, how would you reform social media to make it more productive for democracy? I want to know. Because I think the problem is, is not, I think the, the problem is the very medium itself, right? Um, if you want to have productive conversations with people and bridge across divides, you need to have context, you know, productive conversation is built on context. And that's precisely what Twitter does without, right? Twitter is context is context-less. It's right. a certain amount of figures it's random done. Yeah. The, the bombs dropped, bombs here, bombs right. here. You know, right. as Rebecca Solnit, one of my favorite writers, points out, like it is this was tailor-made to stoke anger, right? <laughs> Just make us pissed off all the time. Um, you know. But the philosophers throughout history tell us that if you want to trust, Spinoza said this, Seneca said it, if you want to overcome anger, which they thought, by the way, was one of the most destructive emotional 
um, social and political emotions, if you want to overcome anger, you need to mentally build context. You need to under see people in a context, understand them in a context, you know, and I don't know whether digital media are able to do this, frankly. I don't know. Uh, I'm pessimistic about it, but I also don't, I, I wouldn't put it past. I mean, this is our future. Digital media is, is we're not, I'm, I, I refuse to be a troglodyte and say, <clears throat> you know, throw it in the trash. And although I'm tempted, throw it away and, and you know, and be done with it and speak right. face to face. But listen, face-to-face -face conversations, they just are much more productive. You know, Montaigne says, for example, pay attention to people's cues. When people speak, they use, they say so much more than with their voice. They use their hands and their shoulders and they, t they tell you so much more. Twitter, you don't see anything but the words. And of course you get angry. Oh, right? that, that gets me, gets us back to privacy. Yeah. Right. Because when you're doing your Twitter thing, yeah. or when you're on Facebook, you are in your own private world, right? That's right. Even though you think you're taking part in a big community, you're really throwing those bombs from a private place, Absolutely. right? Uh, same thing with, with Facebook. You may gravitate to that echo chamber where people all agree with you. You yeah. might actually find community there, but you're not really out talking face-to-face -face with people. No. Which is uh, why I argue in the end, you know, the privacy advocates say that if we're going to save, um, save democracy, we need to keep this right of privacy. I say, by contrast, actually the public sphere is much more important. And the public realm has really been just as easily damaged by digital technology, but it gets a lot less attention. Um, toward the end of your book, actually, uh, I just was reading this because I just was finishing the book this afternoon. Um, so let me, I just wanted to read this passage here. And then I, I think we're going to take some questions in a sure. moment. Uh, that's good. Um, this is from Furman's book, uh, Life After Privacy. To the extent that we have privacy or anything that approaches it, like the solitude conducive to thought, it relies on public action, interaction, and sustenance. The personal space that privacy advocates aim to preserve and protect is the inherent byproduct of effective democracy, mm -hmm. where moral and political attention is focused on the public realm and yeah. the power that is generated there. And what we do in that personal space, the reflection and growth that occurs there is informed and nourished by public power. Yeah. We citizens will secure our privacy such as it is when we empower ourselves by combining forces and energies, channeling our strength and expressing our will to any who would subdue or control us. Mm. Right? That's, uh, that's like... Uh, Rage against the machine. That's uh, we're not we're not going to let the we're not going to become a totalitarian society. Not here anyway. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I mean, one of the ways that I push back on the privacy advocates is this. I said I read Taylor Branch's, uh, you know, very long series about the civil rights, civil rights. And it was obvious to me they never had privacy and yet they succeeded. And what how are they able to succeed? They were able to succeed through concerted and dedicated, you know, public coordination and public action. And so I decided, well, and then I looked at the gay rights movement and I thought about the, and I read about the labor movement and I realized the same thing in all those cases. Early activists in all of those movements were terrorized. They never had privacy for a second. 
through organization and coordination, through associations, they were able to achieve this. And oddly enough, it looks like privacy was the result of their actions, not the prerequisite. It's what mm. they delivered. So, mm. so if you think about like in the context of the gay rights movement, they were not, you were not free to live pri- a private life as a gay man, right? And, right. Until A public after, life. Until you, know, you weren't free to live a public life. Well, you weren't allowed to live a private life either. The American law came after you. We had that case Mm -hmm. with Texas, right? And then ACT UP did their work. And one of the most impressive groups in terms of public action, and they were able to secure, they were able to to deliver a secure right of privacy to live as a gay man in public and private. So it just looks to me like the right of privacy is delivered through public action as opposed opposed to being some kind of precursor. Hmm. And could you bring that up to the Black Lives Matter movement for me then? You're seeing the same thing there. Um, I'd have to think about it more. I've been a little bit uh, more agnostic about the Black Lives Matter movement because um, I'm, I'm, I'm in a wait and see mode to see how it, how it operates. I mean, in my book, I distinguish the labor movement and I distinguish gay rights movement and the civil rights movement from what are called networked movements of the 21st century, like Occupy Wall Street, the Arab uh, uprisings, the Arab Spring. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of these network movements, they didn't do very well. And uh, one of my favorite contemporary authors named Zainab Tufeksi has written about this, uh, she writes for the New York Times quite a bit right now. And she argues, for example, that these movements, they had very shallow roots. They did not have the same kind of, you know, trial by fire uh, and long-term organization and planning that the civil rights movement had. So, you know, the, the, Black, rights, the Black Lives Matter movement is really interesting because it has digital roots, but it has endured. And from some of the evidence I've seen, it's actually endured because it has... Mm, transcended the digital sphere and created actual associations and enacted them in the cities, in the various cities. So right now it looks like Black Lives Matter is some kind of hybrid. What does your research tell you about the future of uh, uh, a person like Donald Trump, Trump or Trump himself in the future using social media so much? I mean, so, supposedly, you know, a lot of uh, Trump's power generated from his use of social media yeah. in the very beginning and, and what, during his presidency and keeping his base fired up. Yeah. You know, he's got more than 70 million votes in this election. Yeah. So that, I mean, I don't see that going away anywhere. Me either. But, right. So that's, I mean, that's a, that's a power, that's a digital power that's used uh, to bring someone like that to power. Absolutely. I mean, everybody has a megaphone, right? You know, there's something, seem, that was why the Occupy movement was so tantalizing. It was so democratic. Anybody Mm -hmm. could say anything, you know, anybody could have their voice heard. And of course, that stretches across the the spectrum, you know, everybody from the Donald Trumps to the everyday citizens, they suddenly have a voice, they suddenly have a platform. But Donald Trump uh, used his platform, of course, he had an advantage, I would say he was already a known quantity, but he used it expertly. He knew exactly how to use it to rally people. Again, Anger is an infectious emotion, and he deployed it well. And social media does that better than any. But and I don't see it. And fear. I, I don't see it going away anytime soon. You know, I mean, I think we have to get used to this, and we have to understand how to view social media statements um, with a grain of salt. You know, there's a well-known phenomenon that social media causes a lot of anxiety in people, like social anxiety, especially the younger generation. 
And so we have a learning curve where we have to grow accustomed to this. And just, you know, when we see a statement that tries to get our goat or that is offensive or upsetting, I don't know. I mean, I think the solution in the, in the short run, at least, is going to be that we have to learn to live with these things and tolerate them and not let them set us off at every instant. Right. Okay, Furman, thank you. And uh, I just want to check in with Tracy to see if we had any questions from uh, our readers and folks who are joining us tonight to talk about uh, privacy, life after privacy. Yes, do you want me to just read them out so you two can discuss? Because there's also comments from earlier on, um, like Dan, when you asked if we could do a survey, some people mm -hmm. can share their thoughts too. Oh, please, why don't you just read some, Tracy? Sure. So um, one of our attendees said monitoring is only for those that can afford it and can afford the changes to better the conditions being monitored. That had to do with uh, health and biosensors, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, Freeman, I mean, uh, Furman, some of this is going to take a while to become egalitarian, right? Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, Moore's law, right? Moore's law is the law of, of that technology will become um, cheaper um, exponentially. Um, I don't know why, you know, we wouldn't uh, have uh, certain health monitoring functions that are going to be affordable in the near future, especially mm -hmm. when you think that like, you know, a lot of this is going to be like a public concern, right? You know, if if the government, if the if 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 our the government budget, uh, which is consumed largely by Medicare and Medicaid and the VA, right? If that risks ballooning so far, uh, don't you think that the government might make take certain expenses and accept them and you know assume them in order to try and um, to to bring costs down? So I mean, yeah, diabetes monitoring, for example, that might be uh, somewhat expensive upfront costs, but you will reap greater savings in the long run. So I don't know. I, I, I'm not exactly sure that that, I'm not, I'm not convinced it would be only for the rich at all. I could very much see that, for example, in socialized medicine, countries of socialized medicine, they will implement this widely for, you know, there would be a lot of pressure for that. Hey, Tracy, look, can I read the question from Aaron? Tracy? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, let, me, let me read that one because uh, I have it here on my screen. Aaron uh, says that to Furman, isn't this just a matter of changing times? Marketing has to change from TV ads and print ads to social media. Do you think it's worse somehow? Do I think it's worse somehow? I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, um, it's a lot more invasive, I guess. Yeah, Maybe. there's data gathering, right? There's more data gathering. It's more nefarious. You know, they're, I don't know how, how, you, how comfortable you will be when you find out the various methods used, you know, to market to us. Um, they are just so hungry, you know, and that kind of uh, set off alarm bells in my own mind, thinking about the extent to which these companies are going to figure us out and figure us out so intimately, you know. Um, it is really um, a no holds barred battle that's going on for market share between these marketers. And, uh, you know, um, there have been some people speculating about where we could end up. And, you know, um, there was a very interesting book written not long ago uh, 
called the Isles Have Eyes about, you know, soon you'll be able to walk into a store and you won't bring your wallet and your phone will notify that, you know, you have entered the store. And uh, as you navigate the aisles, uh, the marketer will know what you like or the marketer will know what your predilections are and say, well, you should buy this product here. You should look at this product. You fill up your cart, you walk out, you don't pay because it'll all be digital. Um, by the way, this same author points out there will be no price tags in the n- near future. Indeed, in the Amazon store, there are there is only a couple Amazon stores, but they don't have price tags. And this opens the door to specialized pricing, right? So, you know, uh, when marketers know your demographics, you walk into a store and they say, would give one price to this person and one price to a different person, right? So you could have that kind of unfairness that could that could roll out and some people- Oh, wait, this you is know, not- until you mentioned that, I was thinking, well, this doesn't sound too bad, especially if, uh, if your e-wallet helps you or the eyes in the aisle helps you save some money on something you're looking for. Well- right? It looks like as usual, it looks like as usual <laughs> that the marketers would generally try and do favors to the wealthy and not to yeah. the poor because they want to yeah. suck in the uh, reliable consumers, you know, and the poor will get stiffed. Before we go to the next question or comment, I got, Tracy, read one of those. Uh, you used the word nefarious there. And I was thinking of the Target example. Yeah. And Target was able to figure out at what stage of pregnancy some of their women shoppers were right and they figured that all out based on what purchases were made at what time Mm. is that was that nefarious of them was that a bad thing for them to do well it's funny like uh, that's that's a great question i don't know the answer i'll tell you this i don't i don't like it i don't feel comfortable about it um you know what's more telling perhaps um the journalist who wrote a big piece about it in the New York Times, he went to Target headquarters in Minneapolis to sit down and hear from them. What they did was not illegal, okay? He went to their office. He sat there for three days. They wouldn't see him. Why wouldn't you see him? If you're comfortable with what you did, then why don't you talk about it? They know that there's something not cool here. Um, Again, it's not easy to say what is wrong, but there is a general feeling that this is not acceptable. So, you know, it is, it's aggressive. I'll say that much. It's very aggressive. It's back in the creepy stage. And it's invasive, you know, but I mean, you ask the question, that's the million dollar question, right? Whenever I give this talk with students and with audiences, I say, I give this example, I say, and how do you feel about that case? Really, how do you feel about that case? When they object, I point out that this happens routinely through their grocery stores and they don't object, right? So researchers have found that on its face, when people are presented with these dilemmas, they object. But in a real life scenario where they get what are called trade-offs, they do. They're, they're, people, okay, with, they're, they're okay with it. Yeah. They're okay with it. <laughs> There's something about pregnancy that was a little bit more eerie. Right. I mean, just think about it. Target was so good at this. They could predict your preg- your delivery date to within a week. What's up with that? <laughs> Why are they doing this? Wow. I think it's more about corporate greed, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, sure. That's what's worrisome. Tracy, you want to read another comment? Sure. Um, there's one from Charles Duff. Hi, Charlie, good to see you. So, and I think it's a good comment that we could talk about um, different political reigns. Um, He says, you ask who's pushing back. 
Some of us are still a some of us are still around who grew up in a world where governments were not as benign as being described when they spied. For example, the Soviet Union as the most enduring example. The idea that big data remains commercial seems short-lived. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, and this is how I got into this uh, conversation because initially as a political philosopher, I, I was thinking, I wasn't even thinking about the marketers. I wasn't even thinking about marketing spies. I was thinking about the government you know, coming out of Edward Snowden. And, mm-hmm. and the argument I told my students was exactly what Charlie was talking about. I was saying to them, hey, listen, we're not that far removed from Stalin's Russia and Maoist China. And it's naive for us to think that governments can be a benign actor here. Um, then I discovered that most of the spying is done by the private sector, but Charlie's ap- absolutely right. Like we have seen cases where um, the private sector has done spying on behalf of the public sp- sector and the government has just co-opted the information and data that the private sector has. Um, so there is really not much of a boundary there. They're blurred. Well, well, that's why it comes back to the question, what can we do to save democracy if, if privacy is gone? And, and that's, again, where I, I, I talk about, you know, it's not about privacy at all. We save we save democracy by, by branching out into associations that occupy a public realm. That is not the digital sphere, by the way. I mean, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a sexy and newfangled answer. It is look at the organiz- organizing that, that the civil rights movement did and these very effective labor movements did. Like th- this playbook is there. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not particularly fun. It's very difficult, but we know what it takes. You know, people have got to branch out. Um, the only way that you can, you, you can't push back against this gov- against any government that's spying us. You can't push back as a lone individual. You've got to do this in associations. You've got to do this by branching out into groups and with your community as well, frankly. I remember uh, somebody saying to me that he was, more likely to speak to a neighbor via Facebook than he was over the fence. Uh, and I thought that's, that's kind of sad, actually. If I was chatting with someone on Facebook and they were next door, I think I'd say, wait a minute, I mean, pour a cup of coffee, I'll meet you outside, put your mask on. You know? That's unfortunate, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I see this in younger people, like it's just easy. Social media is easy, you know? Yeah. Uh, my son had to deliver bad news to a friend yesterday. He said, can I just text him? No, you have to call him. You have to do the old yeah. fashioned thing, call people, Yeah, you know, because there's just so much more gain through the nuances of interpersonal communication. Well, you know what, excuse me, but it seems like we, that's something we're going to have to teach because yeah. those of us who grew up pre-digital, yeah, that's the way we operated. Right. And you don't, um, you don't want to sound like some old fart when you say these things. But, but it is possible to grow up without ever having to look at somebody face to face. And we're, especially now, we're isolated because of this pandemic too. It makes it even more so. Well, I have to tell you, my college students, who I always think are pretty savvy, they're very down on social media. Very they're down on it. They are very down on social media. You know, they, you know I, think, I think the younger generation I think they, they will start to, if not already, they will start to see the inherent problems with this, you know, and I see a couple of, you know, um, 
I see a couple of indicating signs that are positive. For example, the younger generation, uh, this is the first generation until COVID at least, that were moving back into the cities, right? This would, they didn't want to go to the suburbs. They wanted right. to go to the and why is that important? Because then you have a physical community out on the street, right? Suburbia, I wrote in the book, is like you could not design uh, an environment <laughs> better for privacy, privacy than suburbia, where the cul-de-sac right. reigns supreme, right? But, but as the grid in Baltimore, like Bolton Hill, you know, with the corner shops and the parks and, you know, these were designed for easy interaction and democracy, John Dewey says, starts with easy, informal interaction. Like that's the very building, that's the beginning building block. Suburbia, it all has to be like intentional. You have to get in your car and drive to a mall to see somebody. And do you feel in the mood? Maybe not, you know. Uh, uh, the sociologist Ray Oldenburg uh, wrote about the great good place being yeah. this these sort of informal gathering places, coffee shops, <laughs> park benches where you actually meet people and talk and it's part of your life, right? It's not something you have to organize each time. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. very important. Well, uh, Tracy, uh, we have another question here. Um, yes, um, we have... What are your thoughts on the censorship Twitter leveled on the New York Post during oh. the election regarding the Hunter Biden story? Who gets to control the dialogue or should it not be controlled? That's a tough one. I didn't think it was tough. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not a censorship guy because I'm a journalist. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think, I don't believe in censorship, but when you're putting out false information on that scale, mm. uh, you know, isn't, is Twitter, is, doesn't Twitter own up and have some responsibility for that? It's yeah. their platform, right? I mean, yeah. I could, I could speak a lie about you now if, mm -hmm. if it doesn't echo out into the, into the social, into social media, maybe only the people here hear it. Um, but you know, when it gets on to Twitter, it's uh, millions of people could, could see it. So, I mean, I do think Zuckerberg is very disingenuous when he says, you know, he takes no responsibility for the impact. I mean, of course he, of course he yeah. knew, of course he imagined he's not a dumb guy. He's a smart guy. He knew very well what this potential impact could and would be, you know, so it's very difficult. I mean, that's this is a, this is my this is probably another book, Dan. But the terrain for free speech has gotten very tricky, you know, because, you know, surprise, the younger generation they're not in fan they're not in favor of free speech either. So, free speech has a lot of enemies right now. In this, in this case, uh, did you see Twitter as the publisher? Me? Right. You asking me? I mean, yeah, yeah. I thought you in, thought the, in the case of the New York Post story about Hunter Biden, which came from Rudy Giuliani's briefcase. Right. In a laundromat or something. There was some ridiculous thing that other news sources had checked out and had no evidence to support, right? Um, it was a, an attempt at a smear by Murdoch's newspaper, a smear of Biden, Biden's family. Okay, so the publisher in that case is Twitter, because Twitter has a choice about whether they're going to amplify this story that was earlier published by the New York Post. The Post is ultimately responsible, but Twitter... Should Twitter be a conduit for false information that they know is false? Yeah. I, and, you know, I agree it's problematic, but then Parler is going to do it, right? Parler is going to post it. 
Yeah. And then people, then we have to count on people to discern mm. what is what is uh, objectively true. Yeah. Right? What, what is a fact and what is crap? That's right. right. And you're just going to have people in totally in, it's going to be even more divided in their uh, own information universes. I tell you, you should see some of the emails I get from off of my columns, mm. uh, phone calls that I receive from people mm. who just seem to be in an alternate universe of facts. I, and, the, and when you, when you state facts, they mm. believe that you're stating an opinion not facts they there's actually no discernment between what's a fact and what's an opinion or what's just something made up sorry tracy uh that was a long answer to that question um do we have another one huh? i don't see any other questions oh, good all right question yeah so if anyone has we have four minutes so if anyone has a burning question make sure you ask it so i was wondering uh Furman, uh, do you push back at all on this in your personal life? Uh, on what? Being part of social media. Yeah. Are you on, are you on Facebook? Oh, I am. And, uh, are my, you, and you're on Twitter. I know you're on publisher Twitter. publisher told me to be on Twitter, <laughs> but I'm the most hopeless Twitter user. I have no yeah. idea how to use it. I don't like social media at all. I, I can't stand it. But, you know. Why? Is it a distraction? Why? It is. Is a distraction. Uh, I found it to be very distracting when I was avidly using it. Um, I also found that it it did not make me happy. It made me upset, um, <laughs> either angry or anxious. And yeah. I am a. I actually feel strangely liberated. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm happy not being on social media. You know, when I have to check my Twitter feed because my publisher tells me to, I'm like, oh, I don't like it. You know, it's not not fun well they're not you're not being attacked are you no it's just but you're, you're talking about some of the stuff you see in the process of, that, that's exactly uh, it. i don't get attacked yeah. not like you dan nobody yeah. attacks me i yeah. just no i, I just, see a lot of stuff that's I just very sad about the things i see you know either by yeah. people i know or don't know you know it's 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 not yeah. it's not nice yeah um but i must say like i said at the beginning i think we're in terms of privacy Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us have moved past that post, we're post creepy and have accepted a lot of this now. I and think so. I think you have to convince people that you have to convince people that there's a problem there. You know, you have to really sell that. Hey, I think a question came in, Tracy. Yeah. Yes. Um, you were asked, so what do you suggest to the privacy cautious person? Hmm. Hmm. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard if you're going to be a consumer online. Right? Because I didn't even relate the most disturbing news, which is that they don't even need your data. They, they, they know everything about you because of your metadata, right? Which is the data of your data. They don't need to read your emails. They, they know that you've emailed. They know when you've emailed. They don't need to know what you're buying. They know that you've made a purchase at Lowe's, McDonald's, they know where you go. You park your car. They see that you've parked at the Inner Harbor, right? This is the kind of, that was, Edward Snowden revealed this seven years ago. That that's what they're looking for. So you don't have to worry about putting in your emails. It's about all this, this other stuff. And by the way, Facebook has profiles of people even who are not on Facebook. So I often give the example of my father, 87 years old. He's not on Facebook. Facebook knows him. 
Why? Because he has been invoked by either me or my mother. And they have a sh- what they call a shadow profile of him, where they probably know that he likes gin. He's a gin drinker. I don't know what they know about him. Now, you know, why, excuse me, why would they be interested in your father if he's not engaged well, they, in they, Facebook? They can make sales pitches to my mother, to other people around him. You know what I mean? Oh, the ideal gift discover, for Father's Day. They right? might figure out it's his birthday. Oh, yes, right. it's Father's Day and blonde, they'll hit you with things, right? So I, I don't, I'm not a technologist. I don't have any prescriptions for how you can tighten up your ship. Um, my message to you is, um, unless you want to live a cashless life in the woods, I, I don't know, or sorry, only cash, <laughs> get rid of your credit card, <laughs> both cash dependent life in the woods. I don't know that you're going to live a life uh, that is apart from these these spies and these monitors. That, and that's just the hard reality of this digital t- tech economy, which is wonderful, by the way. You know, there are wonders in this digital economy, too. So, you know, that's just the, the reality of it. We have to figure out other ways to protect ourselves. Privacy is not going to be the way to do it. Hmm. It's Furman's book. Life After Privacy, published by Cambridge University Press. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, uh, Furman. I've thank enjoyed you. this conversation with you and I've enjoyed your book. A lot of provocative things in here that I, being post-creepy, I uh, haven't thought about. Also, uh, Spinoza was a Dutch philosopher. Yes. Yes, I learned that. I thought he was <laughs> Spanish. I'm sorry. Well, his father was Spanish, so. Oh, okay. All right. There you go. All right. Yeah, thank you, Furman, for sharing so much from your book. And thank you, Dan, for a lively conversation with Furman about a topic that I think makes a lot of us nervous. Um, And I know post-pandemic, I'm really looking forward to a lot more of those um, democracy revitalizing conversations where I run into people on the street in Baltimore. There you go. We are all planned and virtual right now. So thank you both again. And thank you to everyone that joined us virtually. And thank you to our ASL interpreter from the hearing and speaking. So, and thank you to the Ivy. Don't forget to get your copy of Life After Privacy. So take care, everyone. Take care. Thank you all. Bye. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.